today we're going to continue. The title of the message this morning is called Going Global. I want you to write that down. Going Global. And no, we're not announcing a, a location in, in an international part of the world. Spoiler alert, that's not happening. But the title of the message is Going Global. And uh, this four-week series is based out of the book of Isaiah chapter 40. And we're going to continue today uh, in verses 9 through 20. Uh, but today I'm going to read to you from the message version. It says this, Climb a high mountain, Zion. You're the preacher of good news. Raise your voice. Make it good and loud, Jerusalem. You are the preacher of good news. Speak loud and clear. Don't be timid. Tell the cities of Judah, look, your God. Look at him. God the master comes in power, ready to go into action. He's going to pay back his enemies and reward those who have loved him. Like a shepherd, he will care for his flock, gathering the lambs in his arms, hugging them as he carries them. Sounds nice. Leading the nursing ewes to good pasture. Who has scooped up the ocean in his two hands or measured the sky between thumb and little finger? Who's put all the earth's dirt in one of his baskets, weighed each mountain and hill? Who could ever have told God what to do or taught him his business? What expert would he have gone to for advice? What school would he attend to learn justice? What God do you suppose might have taught him what he knows, showed him how things work? Why? The nations are but a drop in a bucket, a mere smudge on a window. Watch him sweep up the islands like so much dust off the floor. There aren't enough trees in Lebanon nor enough animals in those vast forests to furnish adequate fuel and offerings for his worship. All the nations add up simply to nothing before him. Less than nothing is more like it, a minus. So who even, who even comes close to being like God? To whom or what can you compare him? Some no-God idol? Ridiculous. It's made in a workshop, cast in bronze, given a thin veneer of gold, draped with silver filigree. Perhaps someone will select a fine wood, olive wood, say, that won't rot, then hire a wood carver to make a no-God, giving special care to its base so it won't tip over. And my, how we love to give special care to the foundations the idols in our lives so that our lives won't tip over. Father, we praise you. We thank you for your presence. It's an honor, Lord, to stand in your midst, to be gathered around your holy name. We pray that you would move so mightily across our church today. Touch every heart. Be in every home. Be in every car. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen and amen. Amazing. Love that passage of scripture. Love all of Isaiah chapter 40. And uh, as I was speaking about last week, uh, Isaiah chapter 40 is a very important turn in Isaiah's catalog of work, in his catalog of, of prophecy. Uh, throughout chapters 1 through 39, the theme of Isaiah's prophecy to the nation of Israel uh, is mostly judgment. He sees their sin, he sees their idolatry, and he says, hey, judgment's going to come upon you um, sooner or later. And judgment did come upon Israel about 150 years after Isaiah died. And it came in the form of Babylonian, um, uh, just total destruction upon Israel, upon the city of Jerusalem. And Isaiah prophesied that in chapter 39. So the kingdom of Babylon is going to come upon you and they're going to bring total destruction. And the people of Israel would be exiled from Jerusalem, from Israel into the Babylonian kingdom. Isaiah saw that and that happened 150 years after he passed. But he also saw what was going to happen after that exile. And through chapters 40 through to 66, Isaiah begins to prophesy redemption and, and restoration for the nation of Israel. And of course, he was prophesying redemption from a war that had yet to be fought and lost. He was 
prophesying restoration from an exile that had yet to be endured and a pain that had yet to occur. And he saw it all coming for Israel. And Israel would go into Babylonian uh, captivity for 70 years, seven decades. They were brought out of their homeland. They were brought out of what was familiar and they were brought into what was foreign. Foreign gods, foreign people, foreign customs, foreign culture, foreign place. It was a very difficult experience for the nation of Israel. And there's something to that period of 70 years that I want to talk about for a moment because uh, it has ramifications upon their experience that are worth highlighting. For them to be in Babylonian captivity for 70 years would mean that by the time they came back to Jerusalem, there were Israelites among them who were actually born during the nation's exile in Babylon. And so when they're coming into Jerusalem, those people, they're not actually coming back. They're coming to Israel for the very first time. But then there were other Israelites who were coming back. And they were very young when Israel was exiled from their homeland and brought into Babylon. And now they are coming back to Israel as very old men and very old women. And these people would be setting their eyes upon the rubble of their former home and upon the rubble of their temple. And now they have a, a task ahead of them where they have to get a vision for what this all can become again. In fact, both groups of people, both those who were coming for the first time and those who are coming back, they both have to get a vision for what they are able to rebuild in their city. And for both groups, as they're coming back into Jerusalem, they share a common temptation. Their temptation was the same. And that temptation was to settle for simply getting back to normal. Yeah, their temptation was to come back into where they left, into where their people were pulled from, and to settle for a mindset that was all about just getting back to normal, just rebuilding what was. And so because their temptation is the same, God has a challenge. He has a message for the people of Israel that applies to every single one of them. And that challenge is what? It's to get a bigger vision. To those of them who are coming for the first time, do not make the mistake of thinking that coming to a physical homeland is the extent of what God wants to do for you and what God wants to do through you. To those who are coming back, back to Israel, back from Babylon, don't fall for the trap of rebuilding old ruins into the picture-perfect image of what once was, of the way things used to be. God says this is not about a do-over. This is not about seeing uh, something that was becoming exactly how it used to be. No, this is about seeing the new thing that God wants to do. This is about the new growth that God wants to bring out of the destruction and out of the rubble. This is the theme of Isaiah's word to Israel all throughout chapters 40 to 66. It's why he makes this famous declaration in Isaiah 43 in verses 18 and 19. He says this, do not remember the former things nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. How about in Isaiah chapter 54? Isaiah makes this other famous declaration in verses two and three. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes for you shall expand to the right and to the left and your descendants will inherit the nations and make desolate cities inhabited. 
We see in both of these prophetic declarations from Isaiah the same call of God to Israel. And that call was to lift their expectation for what God is about to do through them. The call was to get a bigger vision. Do not settle for simply getting back to normal, but see the new thing that God wants to do as you come out of this difficult period of time. Ooh, it feels applicable. The vision, of course, was the coming of Jesus Christ. That was the ultimate fruition of the vision that God had for Israel, that through them, the Savior of humanity would come into the world. And through him, the streaming of the world's nations and cities would come into the kingdom of God. And for this vision, Israel is instructed to what? They are instructed to not spare. Do not spare. Literally in the Hebrew, don't hold back. Don't refrain. Give this everything you've got. So Isaiah saw a vision of the church, and he saw it 800 years before the church came forth. And Isaiah counted it as a vision worth going all in for. Of course, that's my constant call to us as people here in Los Angeles, that we would get a vision of the church and allow our hearts to be burdened for that vision to the point that we would count ourselves all the way in, in with our hearts and our minds, in with our hands and our feet, in with our talents and our treasures, all the way in for the vision of a glorious church. You see, the challenge for the Israelites was going to be the limiting nature of having a small mindset upon their return to Jerusalem. And it wasn't just gonna be any old smallness of mind, it would be the smallness of mind that stems from being wounded. Because the Israelites were a wounded people. They were wounded because of what they were pulled out of their home and brought into Babylonian exile and surrounded by idolatry and in this foreign place. They were wounded because they were coming back to the desecration of Jerusalem and the desecration of their temple. And because they were a wounded people, they had a proclivity towards small-mindedness. A wounded mind is always a small mind because its capacity to think big is taken up by things like unforgiveness and bitterness or anger and revenge or doubt and unbelief and cynicism. So the mind that has the capacity to see the bigness of God actually shrinks in its capacity to do that because the capacity is filled up with things that do not belong in the human vessel. And it would be a travesty for us to come to the back end of this year wounded in nature and therefore having the capacity of our minds shrunk so that we cannot see the bigness of God that is on offer to this church. A wounded mind thinks in terms of personal safety and self-servitude. And it cannot see the new thing and the big thing that God wants to do. The potential for this, of course, is incredibly high in a year like 2020. And so Isaiah's message is extra applicable. I feel the Holy Ghost on this message already. I haven't even barely gotten started. The message of Isaiah is so applicable to us today because many people feel like they are coming out of exile in one form or another. And the question is, will you simply seek to rebuild and reestablish the old order of things? Will you come back with a limited mindset of what God wants to do for you and through you? Or will you be really, fully, finally aware of the bigger things, the greater overarching story that God wants you to live out? How about as it relates to our facilities that God has been so gracious to give us as a church? Will we see these buildings as territory to protect or as the destination of our journey 
Or will we realize that these spaces are tools in our hands to serve and reach our city more than ever before and to mobilize believers to go out from these gathering places as people who walk by faith and not by sight? Will you allow 2020 to hamper your hope and to hamper your belief? Or will you be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those three Hebrew boys who went into Babylonian captivity, refused to bow their knee to the aisle, to the idol, sent into the fiery furnace, and came out not burned and not even smelling like smoke? As we come out of this thing, my challenge to us is that we would continue to get a bigger vision for the church. The wild thing about Isaiah's prophecies is that he saw the church from so far away Some of us stand up so close and cannot see what it's supposed to be. Cannot see the glorious vision that God has for his people. The way Isaiah speaks to Israel about their redeemed role is exactly what Jesus sent out his church to do and what he expects them to still be doing today. And in order to fulfill this redeemed role, the people of God have got to get a burden for building something that is bigger than their own personal lives have to get a burden for the church and a big vision for the future. We see both of those things in the Apostle Paul, probably the greatest church builder to ever live. Paul said, I have a daily anxiety in me for all the churches. He had a burden for the church of God, but his burden was able to be carried because he also had a vision. And that vision was for all the world to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. This has been my personal prayer lately, and I don't say that just as like a little preaching thing to say. This has really been my personal prayer lately. God, give me a burden for your house. Give me a burden for your church. Why? Because challenges make us want to run for safety. Challenges make us want to think of self first, and it's so easy in a year like 2020 to plan out all the ways that I could make my life easier. And that's not the life that I want to live. Give me a burden. Burden my heart for your house. Don't allow my vision to be single-minded or self-centered. And I pray that we would all seek for that same burden from the Lord to love what he loves and to build what he's building. And so in that vein, we turn to what the prophet Isaiah says to us today. Climb a high mountain Zion. You are the preacher of good news. Raise your voice, make it good and loud, Jerusalem. You are the preacher of good news. Speak loud, speak clear, don't be timid. The fascinating thing about that command right there for Zion to climb a high mountain is that Zion itself was a synonym for the city of Jerusalem, which was built on top of a high mountain. In fact, that mountain was often referred to as Mount Zion. So it's an odd command to tell something to climb a mountain that is supposed to be permanently stationed upon the mountain. So why give that command? It's an intended irony. And the idea behind the metaphor is that God's people had left their post In fact, they had forfeited their post and that's why they were exiled. But now God is saying it's time to return. It's time to take your position back. It's time to to stand in the post that I have prepared for you. It's time to come back to your post. Of course, this is the metaphor that Jesus draws upon in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you are the light of the world. A city that is what? Set on a hill cannot be hidden. So Jesus in that sermon is literally speaking to the seeds of his church and he is instructing them about how they should operate in the world when in the wake of his resurrection, those seeds begin to grow and the 
church begins to spring out of the ground. The call of Jesus for his church from that day forward is that they would boldly take their stand in the position that God has set out for them in the world. Don't leave your post. Don't stand down. It's on top of the hill. It's on top of the mountain. It's where you're supposed to be. Don't budge an inch from that place, no matter what is going on in the world. You see, for Isaiah's original audience, this command was for Israel to assume the position of heralding the arrival of God the King into the midst of his people. That's why he told them to say, look, God comes. God is coming. But for the church, we live in the reality of God the King having already come, having deposited his spirit in our hearts. He's in the midst as we work for his glory, and he will come again at the end of the age, bringing the fullness of his kingdom. So if it was crucial that Israel take back their position on the mountaintop to announce the good news of God's arrival, is it not just as crucial that the church also ascend that mountain and preach the good news of what God has already accomplished through his arrival and what he is actively seeking to do in people's lives still today? I think that it is. Isaiah saw this vision of the church. In fact, even back in chapter two of his work, in verses two and three, he said this, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from, Jer from Jerusalem. Now this house of the Lord that's on top of this mountain with all all the nations flowing to it. That is the church. That is the church displaying the kingdom of God with all nations flowing into that kingdom. Now notice that the people standing at the base of the mountain, they look up at that mountain and they say to one another, we should go there. Like that's a really novel idea that non-believer would say to non-believer, come on, let's go to church. Come on, let's go to the house of the Lord together and what? Learn to live in the ways of God. What that tells me is that God is very aware of the fact that his ways are attractive. That the ways of God are indeed an inviting way to live for people to participate in. Now God's ways often need teaching and explaining, but they never need apologizing for. A church that apologizes for the ways of God is an impotent church that does not know the power of the Holy Spirit that lives on the inside of them to teach truth to a people who are starving for something that they cannot find in the world. God's ways need no apology. They might need to be taught, but they don't need any apology. I love this picture because it's a picture of a people responding to something. Something's coming out of the house of the Lord and the people are saying to him, come on, let's go up there. They are responding to a church that stands in its position as the preacher of good news, as the house from which the unapologetic, unvarnished, powerful, liberating word of God resounds. If you look at that prophecy, you see they're coming looking for God's ways, God's law. Isaiah says, God's word. What I see here is a people who are hungry for truth. Now, can you think of a generation that has perhaps forgotten the taste of God's truth on their tongue? Many people see a post-truth society and they think to themselves that we are looking at one gigantic foregone conclusion. But what I see is yet another moment where the devil is going to lose at his own game because everything that the devil intends for evil, God does this cool little thing called working it together for good. For everything that the enemy intends for evil, God works together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So what I see in the world is a people who have become emaciated for lack of truth, which is the strategy 
strategy of the enemy. I see that God will direct their hunger towards his word, which is the only thing that satisfies. The only question is when they come, will they find a post that has been left vacant by the church? Or will they find a church that is on fire with the Holy Ghost, with the word of God in their mouth to proclaim God's truth to the nations? You see, this is why the church is so vitally important. Why do we give ourselves to this level of sacrificial generosity to see the church built? Because there's nothing like the church in all the earth. The church is the people and the place where an emaciated world can be truly filled. This is why the Apostle Paul writes to his disciple in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. He says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So Paul has this vision of the church, and he sees the church as the pillar of truth. It is the standing, uh, uh, tried and true, tested throughout the ages, pillar of truth, where people can run into that pillar when, when the world is not safe. And it's also the foundation, the ground of the truth. It's the foundation upon which all truth is built, but it all comes back to the church. And it's a truth that has to be proclaimed and taught, like with words. We are coming into a time where the, the idea that people will know that you are a Christian simply by observing how you live at work, that idea has to die. That was not Paul's strategy for a single city that he went to. He preached the gospel with words, people. He opened his mouth and shared the good news about Jesus Christ. And I just think that's probably an overestimation about how Christian you come off anyway. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think that highly of myself when I walk into the coffee shop. I don't think I'm just exuding Christian vibes. God's word is on your tongue so that you can use it and speak the truth of God to people. It's to this end that Paul declared in Romans 10, verses 13 through 15, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Great. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Now, not everybody is called to preach the gospel from a stage, but everybody is called to preach the gospel from a platform. And that platform is your life and God's goodness and faithfulness on display in your life as evidenced by the transformation of your life and the family that you've been planted into and the unrelenting hope that you have for the future. That's your, 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 your platform to preach the gospel from to the world that is around you. Which then, of course, begs the question, like, do you have hope, right? Like, you, you have the hope? I hope that you got the hope. And I hope that 2020 has not robbed you of your hope. And I hope that this election isn't tampering with your hope. I hope that your hope is so hopey that nothing in the world could pull away from your hope. I love what Peter said in 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Give reverent honor in your hearts to the anointed one and treat him as the holy master of your lives. And if anyone asks about the hope living within you, Always be ready to explain your faith with gentleness and respect. That scripture makes me ask two questions. Number one, do I have hope? Number two, is anyone asking me about it? And if nobody is asking us about our hope, there's a very good chance that we're not doing the first part of the scripture, which is treating Christ as the holy master of our lives. Because tangible hope, relentless hope, is the natural byproduct of a life that is lived under the lordship of Jesus. But hopelessness, or even fleeting hope, that is hope that is here today and gone tomorrow, that is the byproduct, that is the inevitable outcome for those who put their trust in the governance of men or in the things of this world. But when you live your life as submitted to the 
Lord Jesus Christ. Christ the Lord is the reason to end all reasons for having hope in this life that cannot be tampered with no matter what goes on in the world. You are the preacher of good news. That phrase in one word means that you are an evangelist. You say, well, I don't feel like an evangelist. Neither did Timothy. Timothy was timid. Timothy was not a naturally bold person. Evangelism was probably not his natural propensity, but Paul told him, do the work of an evangelist. One of the ways that we evangelize is through our giving. When we sow into the house of God, we evangelize in that way because it literally sends the gospel over the airwaves into people's hearts. It's happening right now. This camera that I'm talking to you through, someone paid for it. Someone bought it. Someone bought this microphone. And it sends the gospel over the airways into people's hearts. It sends the gospel into all kinds of prisons to set captives free. Into regions of the world where we will probably never go. But somebody is there doing the work of the kingdom of God. And we come alongside them and we partner with them in that work. We send the gospel into a chaotic and confused world that is starving for truth. The call to Zion is clear. You are the preacher of good news. And in the same way, the call to the church is clear. You are the preacher of Jesus Christ. Him we preach, Paul says in Colossians. We preach a person. All of our hope is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. We cannot afford to have a secret faith in a starving world. To do that would be to forfeit our role and to give up our inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. That inheritance as Christians is to partner with Christ in what he is doing to rescue humanity to take part in the fruitful labor, the fruitful harvest of souls coming into the kingdom of God. That's precisely what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 4 when he says that the fields are white for harvest and there's a whole Samaritan village coming out of their village to meet him on the outskirts of town. They weren't coming to find man-made promises. They were coming to find the promises of God in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the truth that the church has to offer the world. Him and him alone Which is why Isaiah says, hey, tell the cities of Judah, look, your God, look at him. God, the master, comes in power, ready to go into action. He's going to pay back his enemies and reward those who have loved him. Like a shepherd, he will care for his flock. So Isaiah sees this vision of what God is about to do. And he's telling Israel to get a bigger vision. And guess what that vision centers around? It centers around one thing, and it's the presence of God coming into their midst. Look at God who comes in power and who comes in comfort. The power is for the defeat of evil. The comfort is for those who love the Lord. God comes in power and he comes in comfort and he's coming with his very real presence. The the vision doesn't center around a gift. It does not center around a care package. It doesn't center around simply coming out of exile. The vision centers around, the good news centers around the presence of God coming into their midst. You and I need to be people of the presence of the Lord. The outcomes of being a person of the presence of God is that you live with an awareness of his power and of his comfort. If you want to be somebody who is always aware of the power of God that is available and the mercy of God that is available, then you you need to be a person of the presence of God. Every person throughout the scriptures who was aware of God's presence and, and God's power and God's comfort were that way because they lived in God's presence. David was a man after God's own heart. He was a person of the presence. Isaiah was a person 
person of the presence. The apostle Paul was a person of the presence of God. He writes about in Corinthians being caught up into the third heavens. Like as, as, as amazing that Paul was in, in terms of how bold he was, he was only that bold because he was somebody who spent so much time in prayer and worship and meditation. And when you and I are people of the presence of God, we will never lose the vision for how powerful God is and how merciful God is. Isaiah is seeing a vision here of Jesus as he brings the personal presence of the Lord in the midst of his flock, the church. Why is the church the most important thing on earth to build? Because it is the dwelling place of God's presence. I will say it again, the church is the dwelling place of God's presence. And before you start talking to me about the priesthood of all believers and how the presence of God is with every believer everywhere they go, let me first just tell you two things. Number one, the presence of God is with all believers. That has everything to, every, everything to do with how every believer should approach the gathering of the church and nothing to do with how any believer should devalue the gathering of the church. It's about who you bring when we come together, not what you don't need because you, don't, because you have it all by yourself. Number two, when the church gathers, the Spirit and the power of God is actually present in a unique way to when the church is not gathered. I would say it like this. There is something that the people in this room are feeling right now that you cannot feel when you are on your own. There is a unique arrival of the presence of God when the people of God come together. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. The context for this passage always makes me laugh because the Apostle Paul is literally in the middle of calling out a dude who was sleeping with his stepmom. That's the kind of sin that was, that was you know, partying on in Corinth. So I, don't th I think we're doing pretty good here, unless you're sleeping with your stepmom, in which case I'll write you a letter later. So Paul's calling out this guy's sin, boldly, calling out this guy's sin. And he says this, For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in the spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Translation, call that guy out on his ish, because if you don't tell him, he ain't going nowhere good. So it's better that he suffer now so that he experience the goodness of God later. Yeah, Christian judgment is a real thing and it's something that we should practice as we, you know, anyway, strive to live in holiness. So, so Paul, literally in passing here, is saying here, just as something that he assumes all Christians are aware of, that when they gather, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ is there in their midst in a unique and a special way. How about 1 Corinthians 14, verses 24 and 25? Paul is teaching the Corinthian church about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And he says this, But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. So here we see a vision of a church that when they come together and allow the Holy Spirit to be the leader, what happens is that people who don't know God come into that environment, fall down on their face and go, wow, God's really here. Like God is here in this place in a way that I couldn't feel him before I came into this place. Because when the church gathers, the spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ is in our midst in a unique way. Some of you still don't believe me. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 and 23. But you have come to Mount Zion, that sounds familiar, and to the city of the living 
living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So all of a sudden, when I assemble with the church, I'm coming to God the judge of all, to Jesus the justifier of all, to the people of God who've been made perfect by his blood, and an innumerable company of angels just thrown in for good measure. Something tells me that when the church gets together, it's not like any other get-together in the world. It's not even the same as the presence of individual Christians strewn throughout a city, no matter how many of, their, of those Christians there might be. There's something powerful and tangible when the people of God get under one roof and call unto one name with one hope and one faith and one baptism and one God. Why am I making this point? Because we have to understand the unique position of the church is to be hope for the world in a way that nothing else can ever be. Because when we come together, the presence of God is manifest in a way that holds the power for all manner of life change. The Holy Spirit opens the door for people to step into the newness of life in a way that simply cannot be done anywhere else. Vision Builders 2020 is going to consist of more vision than ever before. I've got more to talk to you about than ever before. And so much of it links back to this idea of meeting people where they are so that they would find themselves amongst the gathering of the church amidst the presence of the living God. There's literally somebody in this room right now who's sitting here because a few weeks ago they heard our worship from the South Bay building and they lived across the street and they came to the night of worship and they served on the weekend unpacking the space and they're here today serving because when the people of God get together, God works many miracles. God does amazing things. The message of Isaiah to Israel was God is coming and he is unimaginably strong. The message of the New Testament to us is God is here and he is unimaginably strong and he comes with grace uh, on his lips and healing in his hands and forgiveness for sins and recompense for evil. The question is, how will we respond? And we'll close on this and the band can come. Because I can tell you what Isaiah anticipated Israel's response to be as he cast this vision for them, as he sees what they are about to go through. Isaiah anticipates what their response is going to be to this call to get a bigger vision. He anticipated that after 70 years in exile, their response would be, mm, how do we know God can do all that? Their response would be, how do we know God is really God and not just another local God among many gods? How do we know that God is really the universally sovereign God and not actually limited in what he can do and where he can go? I mean, you gotta think, after all this time in Babylon, they've been exposed to idol after idol after idol, and they've become aware of, of the hundreds and thousands of idols that are worshiped all throughout the world, and their temptation is to think, how do we know that our God isn't just another God of all the gods that exist? How do we know that God is really able in the way that we think he's able? That was their temptation. It wasn't a question of, is God good? It was a question of, is God able? And to this doubt and this question, the prophet Isaiah declares, who has scooped up the ocean 
in his two hands or measured the sky between his thumb and little finger? Who's put all the earth's dirt in one of his baskets, weighed each mountain and hill? Who could ever have told God what to do or taught him his business? What expert has he gone to for advice? What school to learn justice? What God do you suppose might have taught him what he knows or showed him how things work? When you look at God, what do you see? Because it needs to be the vision that is given to us here in these verses because that's who God is. And Isaiah is anticipating that after decades of despair, Israel's understanding of God will be far too small. And I just wonder that if after one year, or maybe for you it's five years, or maybe for you it feels like a lifetime, whatever the length of time is, if after that period of time your struggles have caused your vision of God also to be far too small, I wonder if, like Israel, coming out of exile, your trials have shrunk your ability to see who God really is. This is Isaiah's point with the imagery of the God who scoops up oceans in his hands and spans sky between pinky and thumb. It's his point with calling out the idols. They're cast in bronze and, and, and draped with gold and silver and made out of wood and given these bases so they don't tip over. Because Isaiah understood that because of the pain that Israel had endured, because of the false gods that they had been tempted to worship, they are left to wonder if God was only God back in Jerusalem and if he'll ever really be able to make good on his promises. And we all have times when we have localized God in our minds to certain areas of expertise and capability. And again, it's not a question of is he good? It's a wrestling of is God able? And you have that wrestling in your life, maybe even right now, is God able to help me in the realm of my work? And you don't pray to God about the opening of job opportunities because you just don't simply believe that God is able to open the doors that no other person can open. Maybe it's in the realm of your health and you've seen defeat after defeat and you've seen people succumb to sickness and so you don't pray to God who is the healer of your wounds as somebody who is able to bring healing into your body because you're just not sure if God is able. Maybe it's in the realm of your relationships and you've experienced trial after trial in your relational world with family or friends. Maybe it's deep betrayal that you've experienced and so you don't pray to God about your relationships because you're just not sure if God is able. I know for a fact that one of the areas that we most often struggle and where we live like God is powerless to affect is in the area of money. And we say we believe one thing, but maybe our pattern of generosity in life indicates something else. It paints a different picture. And it actually shows that we are very slow to trust Him in this realm. But when you don't trust God with your money, you will always end up trusting money as your God. If you do not trust God with your money, you will trust money as your God. But money is nothing more than a tool in the hands of a person. And in a world full of people who worship money, we wonder why people so frequently use one another. Because the Bible says that we always become like what we worship. That's Psalm 115 and Psalm 135. So if money is a tool in somebody's hand, don't be surprised if when you worship money, you get used like a tool in people's hands. The answer, of course, is to decline the invitation from money to, to allow it to be your idol. Some of you today need to RSVP, responde s'il vous plaît, no to money. And responde s'il vous plaît, yes to vision builders. Why live like a slave when you can live like a son or a daughter of the King of Kings? Come on, he's not just good, he's able, he's almighty. 
and every idol that calls out for your dependence is a tiny lifeless statue devoid of any real ability to give you what you need or give you what you desire and those who trust in them always wind up with a vision for the future that in comparison to what God can do is tiny and lifeless too because those futures always center around self and herein lies the answer to the problem of the small mindset that we talked about at the start. Small mindsets can only be permitted to exist in the life of somebody who has a small God. So if you want a bigger vision of your future, it's time to get a bigger vision of your God. Israel's question to Isaiah, is God really only the God of Jerusalem? And to this, Isaiah exclaims, He's not just the God of Jerusalem. He's the God of the whole globe. He's not just the God of where you came from. He's the God of where you are. He's the God of where you're going. He's the God with global reach and global power. And God wants to give somebody that message today. He's not just the God of your church experience. Not just the God of your Sunday. He's the God of your Monday. He's the God of your Monday. He's the God of your marriage. He's the God of your secret struggles and your, and your public victories. He's the God of your career. He's the God of your wins and the God of your losses. He's the God of 2019 and 2020 and 2021. Come on, it's not just a kid's church song. He really does have the whole world in his hands. And that includes your life. God is a global God. And his reach can extend into every area of your world. So let us be a people who trust in the Lord, who lift up holy hands, who live open lives, to be used by God to make an impact in this world. Oh my God. If He's the God of the globe, then there's two things that we ought to do. Two points and I'm done. Number one, pray bigger prayers. The worst word that anybody can use in their prayer is the word just. Ooh, it's a bad word. God, if you could just... God is not in the business of doing just anything. He feeds the 5,000 with a few fish and a few loaves. And there are 12 baskets left over for each disciple to carry and to enjoy. He doesn't just do enough. He comes walking to the disciples in the boat walking on the water. He didn't just show them he could do it. He called Peter out upon the way so that Peter could do it. We do not worship the God who answers just prayers. We worship the God who wants us to lift our faith and pray big prayers and ask God, oh, that you would ask me for the nations and I would give them to you as your inheritance. Psalm 2. Come on, we worship the God who wants us to pray big prayers. Number two, we ought to take bolder steps. God loves when his people take bold steps. 